Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, a podcast dedicated to suspense, crime, and horror stories from the golden age of radio. I'm Eric. I'm Tim. And I'm Joshua. We love mysterious old-time radio stories, but do they stand the test of time? That's what we're here to find out. It's September 2020, and we're still in COVID-19 quarantine, so we join each other via Zoom to bring you a story of my choosing the Ash Tree from the Black Mass. The Black Mass aired on KPFA in Berkeley and KPFK in Los Angeles from 1963 to 1967. Shows were adapted, performed, and produced by Eric Bowersfeld, who became the Director of Drama and Literature at KPFA in 1966 and held the position until 1991. Despite his accomplishments in dramatic radio, Eric Bowersfeld is best known as the voice of beloved Star Wars character Admiral Akbar, one of the Rebellion's top military leaders, first introduced in The Return of the Jedi. Bowersfeld also provided the voice of Jabba the Hutt's right-hand man, Bib Fortuna. Eric Bowersfeld passed away in 2016 at the ripe old age of 93. The Ash Tree is adapted from a short story by Montague Rhodes James, or as he is better known, M.R. James. Many scholars and critics consider James to be the finest writer of ghost stories in the English language. He was also a noted medieval scholar, spending many years at King's College in Cambridge, first as a student and eventually as a don. During that time, he cataloged the university's entire collection of medieval manuscripts and served as the director of the Fitzwilliam Museum of Art and Antiquities. After leaving Cambridge, James was a provost at Eton College, where he remained until his death in 1936. James' ghost stories were published in four collections, Ghost Stories of an Antiquary, More Ghost Stories of an Antiquary, A Thin Ghost and Others, and A Warning to the Curious and Other Ghost Stories. Many of the tales are written as Christmas Eve entertainments, read aloud to friends and fellow academics in the cozy setting of a college library. M.R. James and Christmas became a familiar pairing in the 1970s when, inspired by the success of a 1968 television adaptation of O Whistle and I'll Come to You, My Lad, the BBC commissioned a series of James adaptations presented annually from 1971 to 1978 under the title A Ghost Story for Christmas. The tradition was revived by BBC Four in 2005 with A View from the Hill, adapted by Peter Harness. Other prominent British television writers followed suit, including a new adaptation of O Whistle and I'll Come to You, My Lad, from Luther creator Neil Cross, and several scripts from Sherlock co-creator Mark Gatiss, the most recent of which was Martin's Close, starring former Doctor Who star Peter Capaldi. And now let's listen to The Ash Tree, an episode of The Black Mass, first broadcast December 18th, 1963. It's late at night, and a chill has set in. You're alone, and the only light you see is coming from an antique radio. Listen to the sounds coming from the speaker. Listen to the music, and listen to the voices. Everyone who has traveled over eastern England knows the smaller country houses with which it is studded. The rather dank buildings, usually in the Italian style, surrounded with parks of some 80 to 100 acres. I have to tell you of a curious series of events which happened in such a house. It is Castringham Hall in Suffolk. I think a good deal has been done to the building since the period of my story, one feature that marked out the house from a score of others is gone. As you looked at it from the park, you saw on the right a great old ash tree, growing within half a dozen yards of the wall and almost or quite touching the building with its branches. I suppose it had stood there ever since Castringham ceased to be a fortified place. At any rate, it had well-nigh attained its full dimensions in the year 1690. In that year, 
the district in which the house is situated was the scene of a number of witch trials. Castringham contributed a victim to the extortions. Mrs. Mothersoul was her name. And she differed from the ordinary run of village witches only in being rather better off and in a more influential position. Efforts were made to save her by several reputable farmers of the parish. But what seems to have been fatal to the woman was the evidence of the then proprietor of Castringham Hall, Sir Matthew Fell. Sir Matthew, will you tell the court, please, what you saw regarding Mrs. Mothersoul on the evenings that you mentioned? Well, on three different occasions from my window, I watched her, uh, Mrs. Mothersoul, at the full of the moon, gathering sprigs from the ash tree near my house. Uh, she had climbed into the branches and was cutting off small twigs with a peculiarly curved knife. And uh, as she did so, she seemed to be talking to herself. On each occasion, I did my best to capture the woman, but she had always taken alarm at some accidental noise I had made. All I could see when I got down to the garden was a hare running across the path in the direction of the village. And on the third night, I followed her at what speed I could. I went straight to Mrs. Mothersoul's house. I had to wait a quarter of an hour battering at her door, and when she came out, she was very cross, and apparently very sleepy, as if just out of bed. And as I had no good explanation to offer, I had to apologize, rather embarrassing. Mainly on this evidence, though there was much more of a less striking and unusual kind from other parishioners, Mrs. Mothersoul was found guilty and condemned to die. She was hanged a week after the trial with five or six more unhappy creatures. The other victims were apathetic or broken down with misery. But Mrs. Mothersoul was, as in life so in death, of a very different temper. Oh, her poisonous rage did so work upon the bystanders, yea, even upon the hangman, that it was constantly affirmed of all that saw her that she presented the very living aspect of a mad devil. Uh, yet she offered no resistance to the officers of the law, only she looked upon those that laid hands upon her with so direful and venomous an aspect. Aye, aye, the mere thought of it pried inwardly upon my mind for six months after. However, all that Mrs. Mothersoul is reported to have said was seemingly meaningless words. There will be guests at the hall. There will be guests at Castringham Hall, Sir Matthew. There will be guests at the hall. Sir Matthew Fell, then Deputy Sheriff, was present at the execution and was not unimpressed at the bearing of the woman. He shared certain misgivings over the whole business with the vicar of his parish as they rode from the scene of the gallows. I'll say it again, Mr. Crome. My evidence of the trial was not given willingly. I'm not at all specially infected with the witch-finding mania, but I declare that I could not give any other account of the matter than, than what I had given. And I could not possibly have been mistaken in what I saw. Ah, but the whole transaction has been repugnant to me. Now, I am a man who likes to be on pleasant terms with those about me. Yes, those are my sentiments, Mr. Crone. And the good vicar applauded them, as any reasonable man would have done, and was easily persuaded to take a late supper at the hall. 
When Mr. Crome thought of starting for home about half-past nine o'clock, Sir Matthew and he took a turn on the gravelled walk at the back of the house. They were in sight of the ash tree, which I described as growing near the windows of the building. When Sir Matthew stopped, uh, Mr. Crome, uh, look there a moment. Where, Sir Matthew? Um, at the ash tree there. Uh, look, what is that that runs up and down the trunk of it? It is never a squirrel. They will all be in their nests by now. Ah, oh, yes, I see some sort of, of moving creature. Uh, what can you make of it, Mr. Crome? Nothing of its color in this moonlight, Sir Matthew. Ah, but now it's gone. Uh, was it a squirrel? Oh, well, for an instant there was a sharp outline. And I could swear, though it sounds foolish, that squirrel or not, it had more than four legs. Aye, more than four legs, Sir Matthew. Next day, Sir Matthew Fell was not downstairs at six in the morning, as was his custom, nor at seven nor yet at eight. Hereupon the servants went and knocked at his chamber door. When the door was at last opened from the outside, they found their master dead and black. Mr. Crome came as quickly as he could to the hall and was shown to the room where the dead man lay. Many years later, Mr. Crome's notes regarding this incident were found among his papers. They showed how genuine a respect and sorrow he felt for Sir Matthew, and they also threw some light upon the common beliefs of the time. There was not any the least trace of an entrance having been forced to the chamber, but the casement stood open, as my poor friend would always have it in this season. He had his evening drink of small ale in a silver vessel of about a pint measure, and tonight had not drunk it out. This drink was examined by the physician from Berry, Mr. Hodgkins, who could not, however, as he afterward declared upon his oath before the coroner's quest, discover that any matter of a venomous kind was present in it. For, as was natural in the great swelling and blackness of the corpse, there was talk made among the neighbors of poison. The body was very much disordered as it lay in the bed, being twisted after so extreme a sort as gave too probable a conjecture that my worthy friend and patron had expired in great pain and agony. And what is as yet unexplained, and to myself the argument of some horrid and artful design in the perpetrators of this barbarous murder was this, that the women which were entrusted with the laying out of the corpse and washing it, being both sad persons and very well respected in their mournful profession, came to me in great pain and distress both of mind and body saying what was indeed confirmed upon the first view. We had no sooner touched the breast of the corpse with our naked hands than we felt a violent smart and aching in our palms. I am the swelling, oh, the swelling, from the palms to the elbows, so immoderately, the pain still continuing that for many weeks afterwards we were forced to lay by the exercise of our calling. And yet no mark to be seen on the skin. No mark seen on the skin. Upon hearing this, I sent for the physician, and we made as careful a proof as we were able, by the help of a small magnifying lens, of the condition of the skin on this part of the body. But we could not detect any matter of importance beyond a couple of small punctures or pricks which we then concluded were the spots by which the poison might be introduced, remembering that ring of Pope Borgia, with other known specimens of the horrid art of the Italian poisoners of the last age. 
so much is to be said of the symptoms seen on the corpse. As to what I am to add, it is merely my own experiment, and to be left to posterity to judge whether there be anything of value therein. There was on the table by the bedside a Bible of the small size in which my friend used nightly and upon his first rising to read a set portion. And I taking it up, not without a tear duly paid to him, it came into my thoughts to make trial of that old and by many accounted superstitious practice of drawing the swords. I must needs admit that by my trial not much assistance was afforded me. Yet, as the cause and origin of these dreadful events may hereafter be searched out, I set down the results. In the case, it may be found that they pointed the true quarter of the mischief to a quicker intelligence than my own. I made, then, three trials, opening the book and placing my finger upon certain words, which gave in the first uh, these words from St. Luke, um, chapter 13, uh, verse 7. Cut it down. Cut it down. And in the second, uh, Isaiah, uh, chapter 13, uh, verse 20. It shall never be inhabited. It shall never be inhabited. And upon the third experiment, uh, uh, Job. Chapter 39, verse 30. Our young ones also suck up blood. Our young ones also suck up blood. This is all that need be quoted from Mr. Crome's paper. Sir Matthew Fell was duly coffined and laid into the earth. His son, Sir Matthew II, succeeded to the title and estates. It is to be mentioned, though the fact is not surprising, that the new baronet did not occupy the room in which his father had died, nor, indeed, was it slept in by anyone but an occasional visitor during the whole of his occupation. He died in 1735, and I do not find that anything particular marked his reign, save a curiously constant mortality among his cattle and livestock in general, which showed a tendency to increase as time went on. The second Sir Matthew was duly succeeded by his son, Sir Richard. It was in his time that the great family pew was built out on the north side of the parish church. So large were the squire's ideas that several of the graves on that unhallowed side of the building had to be disturbed to satisfy his requirements. Among them was that of Mrs. Mothersole. A certain amount of interest was excited in the village when it was known that the famous witch, still remembered by a few, was to be exhumed. And the feeling of surprise, and indeed disquiet, was very strong when it was found that though her coffin was fairly sound and unbroken, there was no trace whatever inside of it of body, bones, or dust. One morning... It was in 1754. Sir Richard woke after a night of discomfort. Mrs. Chiddock, I can certainly not sleep in that room again. Oh, sir? The chimney smoked persistently, yet it was so cold that the fire had to be kept up. Furthermore, something had so rattled about the window in the wind that no man could get a moment's peace. 
Oh, I'll certainly not sleep in that room again, Mrs. Chiddock. I shall select a new room this morning. As you say, sir. There's the fine large study across the hall, if I may suggest. Uh, no. No, it has an eastern aspect. I must have a room with a western lookout, so that the sun does not wake me early. And the room must be out of the way. I don't want servants forever passing the door. Well, Sir Richard, you know there is but one room like that in the house. Oh? Which may that be? Why, sir, that is Sir Matthew's room, the west chamber. Well, put me in there. I lie there tonight. But no one has slept there these forty years. The air has hardly been changed since Sir Matthew died there. Well, then it's time the air be changed. Come along, Mrs. Chiddock. I'll see the chamber at least. So it was opened. And indeed the smell was very close and earthy. Sir Richard crossed to the window, threw the shutters back, and flung open the casement. The view was almost entirely blocked off by the ash tree. Oh, sir, the tree. It makes the room so oppressive, so dampish, sir. Well, we'll shortly take care of that. Air the room, Mrs. Chiddock, all today, and move my bed furniture in in the afternoon. When the Bishop of Kilmore arrives, you can put him in my old room. But, sir... There's a fearfulness about this room. It's the very room... Yes, yes, it is here my grandfather died. Make no difficulties about it, Mrs. Chiddock. I do not wish to listen to any more. Be about the airing. Be about the airing. In the afternoon, the Bishop of Kilmore arrived. He had risked the approaching storm in order to have an hour with Sir Richard before the arrival of the other guests. The bishop had brought with them a manuscript, come upon while exploring the papers and other remains of the once vicar of Castrinum. And for the first time, Sir Richard was confronted with the enigmatical sortes biblicae of Mr. Crome, which you have already heard. They amused him a great deal. Well, my grandfather's Bible gave one prudent piece of advice, cut it down. That stands for the ash tree. May rest assured I shall not neglect it. Such a nest of catars and agues was never seen. I was wondering, sir, uh, your parlour here contains the family books. Ah, yes, I wonder whether the old prophet is there yet. Now, let's see. Um, the Bibles are kept over here. And I know the one, the thick, dumpy... Ah, yes, here it is. Look here. Look here, sure enough, the inscriptions, the inscriptions on the flyleaf. To Matthew Fell, from his loving godmother, Anne Aldis. The 2nd of September, 1659. Well, well, your lordship, it would be no bad plan to test him again, eh? I'll wager we'll get several family names from the Chronicles. Uh, uh, let's see now. Uh, see what? do we have here? Thou shalt seek me in the morning, and I shall not be. Thou shalt seek me in the morning, and I shall not be. Later came the other guests. Dinner at five, wine, cards, supper, and dispersal to bed. Next morning, Sir Richard is disinclined to take his gun with the rest. He talks instead with the Bishop of Kilmore. As the two were walking along the terrace and talking over certain alterations and improvements for the house, the Bishop suddenly pointed to the window of the West Room. Uh, you could never get one of my Irish flock to occupy that room, Sir Richard. Ah? Uh, why is that, my lord? It is, in fact, my own room. Uh, well, our Irish peasantry will always have it that it brings the worst of luck to sleep near an ash tree. And your fine growth of ash is not two yards from your chamber window. Perhaps it has given you a touch of its quality already. You do not seem, if I may say it, so much the fresher for your night's rest as your friends would like to see you. Yes, that or something else, it has true cost me my sleep from twelve to four, my lord. Ah, but the tree is to come down tomorrow, so I shall not hear much more from it. 
Ah, I applaud your determination. It can hardly be wholesome to have the air you breathe, strained as it were, through all that leafage. Your lordship is right there, I think. But I had not my window open last night. It was rather the noise that went on, no doubt from the twigs sweeping the glass that kept me open-eyed. Oh, I, I think that can hardly be, Sir Richard. Here, uh, you, you can see it from this point. None of those nearest branches can touch your casement. Unless there were a gale and there was none of that last night. Or they missed the panes by a foot. No such true. What then will it be, I wonder, that scratched and rustled so? Ay, and cover the dust on my sill uh, with lines and marks. Ah, well, sir, uh, uh, might it be uh, the rats? The rats that must have come up through the ivy. Of course, of course, the rats. It, it was the rats. So the day passed quietly, and night came, and the party dispersed to their rooms, and wished Sir Richard a better night. And now we are in his bedroom, with the light out and the squire in bed. The night outside is still and warm, so the window stands open. There is very little light about the bedstead, but there is a strange movement there. It seems as if Sir Richard were moving his head, rapidly, to and fro, with only the slightest possible sound. And now you would guess, so deceptive is the half-darkness, that he had several heads, round and brownish, which move back and forward, even as low as his chest. It is a horrible illusion. Is it nothing more? Ah, there, something drops off the bed with a soft plump, like a kitten, and is out of the window in a flash. Another, four of them, and after that there is quiet again. Thou shalt seek me in the morning, and I shall not be. Thou shalt seek me in the morning, and I shall not be. As with Sir Matthew, so with Sir Richard, dead and black in his bed. A pale and silent party of guests and servants gathered under the window when the news was known. Ominous guesses were hazarded. Italian poisoners, popish emissaries, infected the air. But the Bishop of Kilmore looked up at the ash tree. He noticed that a white tomcat was crouching in the lower boughs, looking down the hollow which years had gnawed in the trunk. It was watching something inside the tree with great interest. Suddenly it got up and crammed over the hole. Oh, well now, Kitty, what do you see there, inside the ash? Oh, careful, careful of the edge there, careful now. But the bit of edge on which it stood gave way, and the cat went slithering in. Everyone looked up at the noise of the fall. It is known to most of us that a cat can cry, but few of us have heard, I hope, such a yell as came out of the trunk of the great ash. Two or three screams there were, and then the slight and muffled noise of some commotion or struggling was all that came. But Lady Mary Harvey fainted outright, and the housekeeper stopped her ears and fled till she fell on the terrace. The Bishop of Kilmore and Sir William Kentfield stayed. There is something more than we know of in that tree, my lord. I'm for an instant search. I agree with you there, Sir William. We must get to the bottom of this. The secret of these terrible deaths is there, 
in the ash tree. A ladder was brought, and one of the gardeners went up, and looking down the hollow could detect nothing but a few dim indications of something moving. They got a lantern, and the gardener let it down by a rope cautiously. They saw the yellow light upon his face as he bent over, and suddenly the face became struck with an incredulous terror and loathing. Oh! He fell back from the ladder, letting the lantern fall inside the tree. A quick, Sir William, catch the man! Uh, what has he seen? What has he seen? He's in a dead faint, my lord. It will be some time, I fear, before any word can be got from him. Oh, oh, but, but look to the tree. Look to the tree, my lord. It's a flame. The bystanders made a ring at some yard's distance, and Sir William and the bishop sent men to get what weapons and tools they could, for clearly whatever might be using the tree as its lair would be forced out by the fire. And so it was. First, at the fork, we saw a round body covered with fire the size of a man's head appear very suddenly, then uh, seemed to collapse and fall back, uh, this five or six times. Then a smaller ball leapt into the air and fell on the grass, where after a moment it lay still. We went as near as we dared to it, and saw. Look, your lordship, it's an enormous spider. The remains, venous and seared, of an enormous spider. And as the fire burned, more terrible bodies like that began to break out from the trunk. And it was seen that these were covered with grayish hair. There will be guests at the hall. There will be guests at Castringham Hall, Sir Matthew. There will be guests at the hall. All that day the ash burned, and until it fell to pieces the men stood about it and from time to time killed the brutes as they darted out. Uh, at last there was a long interval when none appeared and we cautiously moved in and examined the roots of the tree. We found below it a rounded hollow place in the earth, wherein were two or three bodies of these creatures that had been plainly smothered by the smoke. And what is to me more curious, now, at the side of this den, against the wall, was crouching the anatomy or skeleton of a human being, with the skin dried upon the bones, having some remains of black hair. It was pronounced by those that later examined it to be undoubtedly the body of a woman, and clearly dead for a period of fifty years. The Ash Tree from the Black Mass here on the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society podcast. Once again, I'm Eric. I'm Tim. And I'm Joshua. That was a episode that was given to us by Joshua. And Joshua, let's just start things off. I have a question uh, for you off the top. Are you mad at me? <laughs> Should I interpret that as you did not enjoy this whatsoever? Here's where I'm at. I realize that there's probably something that I am missing again and something really heady about this and something really cool that during our discussion, I'm going to go, oh, that is cool. So I am reserving and waiting to just start saying stupid stuff because there's way too many of these podcasts where I start ranting and saying stupid things. And then you guys pop in and go, um, actually, uh, and sorry to do nerd voices for you both, but then I'm, pro I'm proven wrong or 
my mind has changed. So instead of saying anything, I just thought I'd start with a little jab. But Ouch. I had to wake up and go back a few times. You <laughs> 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 go, oh. Let me ask awake. you a question, Eric. Yeah. Was it the story or is it the way Black Mass presents stories because it splits the difference between mm -hmm. an audiobook and a radio drama? Definitely presentation by Black Mass has something to do with it. We can talk about production details, but it is. The it, harpsichord music make you sleepy. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> I have so many notes about harpsichord music. My notes were, Eric is going to hate the harpsichord music. <laughs> I never thought... <laughs> I never thought I would miss Lurch. Like, oh, you know, could really jazz up this harpsichord, Lurch. That's what we need. I think that does have to do with their presentational style. It does have a very audiobook quality to it. But then, uh, and here we go, because I know you love M.R. James, right? And everybody does. You know, listen to our intro. He's the greatest writer ever. So I can't say anything bad about him. <laughs> but I don't find the story all that compelling yet. I'm sure you will explain to me why it's compelling. <laughs> We're all just expressing opinions. So I don't think you missed anything. I love this, but I don't think there's any like levels or hidden things. I think it's just a challenging piece. Uh, what I love is that it starts out this really cozy little English voice telling you a quaint little story about a ghost. And at least I thought it was, that's what it was gonna be. And I love that, but I, you're not wrong. That's what it starts out as. And if you don't enjoy that, then that's no fun. Yeah. She got caught taking some limbs off a tree and they hung her. And then years later, they found her bones inside the tree. Right? Yes, but all sorts of horrific things happened along the way. <laughs> I know. I'm trying to be. <laughs> <laughs> well, James is the master of creeping dread. That's how a lot of people describe his style of ghost and horror stories. The tension in his stories come from this unease created when the rational world bumps up against this unnatural or supernatural world. And so he spends a lot of time, a lot of word count in his story, building up the ordinary aspects of the narrative. And so the point of that, I think, is so that when he gives those quick, weird glimpses into the supernatural its impact is magnified by the mundane world around it. But that means for someone like you, Eric, who really wants action and wants to get a story going, uh, you might be lost during that time in which he is building up a regular everyday life. Because I have this great quote from James, which I think gives some insight into what he's trying to do, which may not be your cup of tea, but he wants to put the reader into the position of saying to himself, if I'm not very careful, something of this kind may happen to me. He strategizes in his storytelling that way. And so if the payoff isn't good for you, you are going to be out. Right. But turns out to be a cat. There's, there was just a cat who was killed. What's been controversial about that over the last couple of months <laughs> of the podcast? <laughs> for my own vote on the cat thing, that cat had it coming. I mean, that cat brought it on itself. Yeah. One of the reasons I picked this one is because I think it's actually high on incident. Right. So if you think this one's dull. <laughs> I have a lot to say about this story and everything. The last Black Mass episode we listened to was an adaptation of H.P. Lovecraft's The Outsider. The reaction to that was, this is not my favorite Lovecraft story. And this performance really, I felt, dug in and found some interesting things that made me like the story a lot more. And then, of course, like the performance a lot. Mm -hmm. When this story started, like I was saying, I heard this sweet little rural English voice telling a story about a cottage in Suffolk. And I mentally just got a blanket around me and some cocoa and was ready to be calmly lulled to sleep. <laughs> and then there was the moment when they said, is that a squirrel? And they point out, no, I saw its silhouette and it had more than four legs. And like, <laughs> no, right. That is not quaint ghost story. That's like alien. And this story and the performance of it in the presentation the tone pivots on a dime. It switches from journals and stories from long ago to now we're in the room with the guy. And then he's got a bunch of faces falling off his body and it's super horrific and gross and very disturbing. And by the time it gets to be burning spiders coming out of the tree, I'm just totally freaked out and I loved it. <laughs> um, so it really got a big reaction out of me. I want to point out one technical aspect to the writing in that moment when we're in the room with Richard Fell and the giant 
spiders are on his face and chest. The story moves suddenly into present tense from past tense. And it has this really disorienting effect because suddenly you're no longer 285 years ago. You are in the present. You are in this room and it is happening right now. And 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 in a a lesser writer, that would be like, you messed up and switched tenses. You you shouldn't do that. (laughs) Yes. It's very much intentional there and has to me one of the more distressing similes I can remember in any of his stories when he describes the thing falling off the bed and making a plop like a kitten. Just comparing these hideous creatures to an adorable kitten and comparing their weight and the sound they make is just really distressing. I am not chiming in because you guys love it so much and I feel like, oh, I'm not going to sit here and go, well, this is what I hated because then I'm just ruining your guys' fun. You're fun of talking about it. Do it. That's what we do. (laughs) (laughs) I struggled. That's all. And I think that Joshua said it best. I think it has to do with the the narrative style of it. That, for example, Tim, you brought up, oh, look at this thing moving in the tree over there. Yeah. I think it had four legs. Yeah. How about that? Like the reaction to it. And there is no reaction because it's just a story being told. It's just a guy telling it to you. I think you always want someone to respond really huge to everything. Because I think if this were a drama, you wouldn't respond either. It's this glimpse. That's what's scary about it. I thought, but no, it wouldn't have. No. But to me, there's not even that. There's a very, it's very English too. It's like, oh, yes, possibly a thing with more than four legs. Crumpets. It doesn't feel, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It didn't scare you at all, clearly. (laughs) Well, I can see if this doesn't feel like it has stakes. That's why. That's the word I'm looking for. There's no stakes. It doesn't feel urgent. It doesn't feel like things are escalating. It feels like a series of notes are being read to me about uh, some things that happen instead of living it and going, oh, my God, oh, my God, here it comes, here it comes, here it comes. It's like, oh, and this happened. happened." It's very matter-of-factly delivered and kind of flat for me. And I feel terrible because <laughs> you guys <laughs> love this. <laughs> no, but you're, you are right. And like, there's not much of an arc or a journey with these characters. Right. I'm really engaged because I think James sets up this really interesting, compelling mystery that I want to know what the answer is. Right. And I don't want to know. But I don't disagree that like these characters are kind of just fodder in some ways. And it is a, almost being presented as a collection of historical documents. And I think that's why it's so powerful when it switches to the present tense in that horrific moment, because suddenly you aren't distanced. Suddenly you are there in the room. Yeah. I also think the stakes are historical again, because it covers, and one of the reasons I like the story a lot is it's three generations who suffer through this. So the arc is less of a personal arc, but a generational one. Mm -hmm. And one thing I find interesting is Matthew Fell, the first Matthew Fell, his strange motivations or ambiguous motivations in testifying at Mother Saul's trial. It stands out to me uh, where he gives this testimony Mm -hmm. and then says he, you know, he saw her, she was in the tree and I followed her and she turned into a hare. I went to her house, but she just looked like she just got out of bed. It was really embarrassing. But uh, there you go. That's what happened, guys. Oh, you're going to hang her? All right. Well, he specifically says, I'm not for all this witch hunting mania, but that's what I saw. And I just had to tell the truth. I'd really rather just get along with everybody. And there are some more modern readings of this story where they see some sort of sexual implication in here. Like he may have seen this woman in a tree. I think in the story it gets cut here. She's just in her night clothes and he follows her to her house and is turned away at the door. And there's been this reading of like this testimony was some kind of revenge. And I think it's a case of people reading this story through the same lens. They read historical witch trials. Right. Very modern perspective of its punishment for women not meeting the social norms of the time. But I don't buy that. I think this is pretty literal that it's a guy who was just naive and conflict avoidant. He really saw the things he saw and um, he lacked the courage of his belief about witch trials. And so just wraps it in the virtue of telling the truth to ease his conscience. And he pays for it by a horrible death. (laughs) But then it's interesting if you go to the next generation and Matthew Feld Jr. 
does not interfere with the ash tree. He does not open the room where his father died. And the only consequences he suffers is the, the right. death of his cattle in large number and other livestock, which presumably are these spiders coming out and getting them at night. I'm not sure it's left vague and up to your own interpretation. I uh, think they're feeding and getting big. Yep, getting bigger and bigger. And then we have the guy, Richard Fell, who 100% seems to have be just courting death. And there, I think, is where the tension comes in because we saw what Matthew Fell did. We saw that the next guy survived by not doing anything, and in comes Richard Fell. And that's where I'm engaged. We're like, oh, don't do that. Don't mess with the grave. Don't sleep in your grandfather's room. Right. There's where I'm engaged. But it is a historical engagement. (laughs) I need to confess a truth about the second time I listened to this. When I realized when he said there was a hare that led down the road, that it was the second time I went, oh, a rabbit. (laughs) Not just like one long strand of hair. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) I was like, hair? Gross. So here's my argument. Instead of us having to go, hey, I think what's happening is that possibly these cattle are dying from these spiders coming out and killing them. And I think that they're uh, getting bigger. Why not an entire descriptive and scenes of these spiders, spiders coming out and then you have an 800 cows. page Stephen King novel, which yeah. isn't my taste. Uh, but like I said, it's implication and yeah. uh, suggestion, which is the right. style and type of ghost story he tells. And it's not right. the right way to tell a ghost story, but it's, it's the way he does. And it and appeals to me personally. Right. And what I'm, that's exactly our difference is that entertainment for me is I don't want to have to think. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't want to have to sit and think, what's going on? What's happening? I want it all in front of my face. I have a hard time sometimes with the Bourne identity movies, even though those are aimed at me, because could we just hold the camera still so I could see what's happening? Uh, it, it, it becomes complicated. Uh, my point being is, if the spiders are killing the cows, then tell me that, instead of me having to go, is that what's happening? Does that make sense what I'm trying to say without trying to be too flippant and too much of a jerk right now? Is is I don't connect to something that doesn't just tell me what they want me to know makes total sense uh i enjoyed being lied to essentially and being deceived of like there's these bible quotes and it's this sort of weird ghost thing and i was totally like i believe that's what's happening and then when it's spiders which uh, spiders even if you just said spider it's a story about spiders that's a scary story to me because right. spiders with me out <laughs> yeah let alone like, giant spiders Right. Tim just hit on one of my other like favorite horror supernatural things. And that is cryptic messages of doom. I am a sucker for that. So (laughs) the the through line of drawing sorts, which comes from pagan times, and it was really only briefly embraced by the Christian church, like at the very infancy of Christianity, because they carried it over and put a Christian spin on a pagan form of divination. The vicar even points that out, that even in 1600, this is still a really weird superstitious thing, but okay. <laughs> but it has a great eerie effect, especially in the production. I think that's one of those elements that Black Mass does really well, the way the various scripture quotes are echoed and repeated. Again, the production value uh, mirrors the sense of unease and uncertainness that the story has. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm wondering, so maybe if you become so disconnected to the story because of the way it's told, you miss out on a few details that I would think in a different setting you might find compelling. Little details like the washerwomen coming to lay out the body and everywhere they've had contact with their bare flesh becomes swollen and hurts for weeks. And just those little details that are inexplicable and people are left to just scratch their head and wonder. You know, it's great. I think that it also has something to do with the old style of writing. And that makes me sound like such a dolt, but it's hard for me to follow. And then to just have it read to me instead of performed to me uh, makes it even less enjoyable. And- there is that scene talking about the actual execution of the witch. Mm-hmm. That's where it really dips the most heavily into I'm reading a book. The multi voices that are yep. talking. Yeah, that was the point at which. I might be getting off this train here. 
And I'm so glad I didn't because I really enjoyed the rest of it, but that's tough. Uh, but it does have the great delivery, I personally think, on the there will be guests in the hall tonight uh, from the woman doing Mother Saul that has that slight warble to it. She sounds weak, but suitably angry. And because the threat is so innocuous, but you know you're listening to a, a horror story, you know there will be guests in the hall tonight must mean something horrible. But on face value, it should be like, oh, cool. I'll set out some extra plates. <laughs> <laughs> All horror is secretly bad roommates. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to They're... think now of every ghost story. In a, I mean, yeah, uh, Cypress Canyon. <laughs> that's a guy that was living there before you got there. He didn't move <laughs> out. <laughs> oh, God, there's blood under the closet door and dirty dishes in the sink. <laughs> <laughs> Well, use this time right now, then, you two, to just pontificate on the brilliance of this. What else do you want to say about it? <laughs> Eric is actually making me like this even more. <laughs> it's it's working in reverse. <laughs> the moment when the bishop points out that the ash tree branches don't come close enough to the window for them to be the things that have been scratching against it, and Richard Fell's like, oh, you're right. And to me, I have this horrific moment of like, oh, then what is it? He doesn't have it, and he sh kind of should, which makes it more alarming. And then the bishop says, it's probably just rats. And Richard Fell's like, yeah, it's probably just rats. And only in an M.R. James story does the idea of <laughs> rats clawing at your window in the dead of night elicit a sigh of relief <laughs> from the characters. Also, it's turn of the century England. It's like us with squirrels in our backyards. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> They probably do set out extra plates for the rats at night. <laughs> <laughs> They're very used to them. I read this interesting fact that James was, A, very fond of cats, always had one uh, throughout his entire life, and he was also an arachnophobe. So it's interesting oh. to me how he did blend those things into this story because he does have the cat that is killed by an ash tree full of giant spiders. And again, using descriptions of a kitten, that soft plump sound the kitten makes coming off the bed to use with the spider is just like, oh, you're actually just trying to terrify yourself, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> I, I will say one of the big production fails for me, though, is that cat meow. A, it's not a good cat meow. And B, they don't even attempt to match the description because they're saying like, these screams like I've never heard an animal make. And the cat just sounds yeah. mildly, mildly annoyed. My cats make scarier noises when I roll over in bed at night and nudge them. <laughs> well, that's because you have 47 cats and you're constantly <laughs> squishing one. And I have the same note. The cat meow was terrible. But I get that it's not about production value. This is someone telling us a story that's already considered a great story and they're trying to pay honor to that story and so all of that's great but there is very little production value and some that's there like the cat meow is not great you can give me a terrible old-time radio story the story can be terrible and i can be whisked away with phenomenal foley and production quality and like oh the story's not great but i feel like i'm there <laughs> so there wasn't that either. This definitely, as you said in the beginning, though, they were written to be told to you sitting in a college library, right? I mean, someone is supposed to be reading this to you, and they did that. They read it to me. And <laughs> I listened to the story not knowing it was M.R. James. Uh, and so when it started out, I thought, oh, quaint, cozy little English story. And by the end, I was 100% convinced this was written in the last 15 years or before Black Mass. Like, it was a modern story. Yeah, I mean, so it's I somewhat surprised. It's somewhat atypical for M.R. James. It lacks some of his signature features. It doesn't have the real Jamesian protagonist, which is usually sort of a harmless middle-aged antiquarian who stumbles across some ancient book or object that causes much distress. Here, he actually moves backwards in time and tells a story of, of maybe how this terrible thing that some future antiquarian will stumble across happened. <laughs> so that's a little different. And it doesn't really feature a ghost. It's kind of the last thing I wanted to bring up is that we don't really know how Mrs. Mothersall got from her casket, which was undisturbed. It was just empty, but it didn't look like it had been open to a hollow under the ash tree. And the spiders aren't ghosts. They seem to be magical, dark magic in some way, but they can be killed like a werewolf or a 
vampire. We don't see any actual manifestation of her spirit in any other way other than she's maybe the mother of these spiders in some way. That's what I took it as, is that she was in command of them somehow, and she set up a headquarters in the base of a tree. (laughs) (laughs) The only part I took to be as maybe sort of ghost-like was the drawing sorts and the fact that her body moved, but the spiders themselves just seemed to be like, you got some venomous spiders in a tree, and they're just infested there kind of permanently and getting worse and worse all the time. Yeah, it's much more of a monster horror story than James usually writes. I was introduced to M.R. James through this podcast when we listened to Casting the Runes, which is based on an M.R. James story. And I always loved that episode of Escape. And so then I went and chased down more M.R. James and The Ash Tree was the first one I read. So it holds a, a special place in my ghostly heart for that reason. But it is a little atypical. Casting the Runes is gorgeous. I mean, I assume, Eric, you love uh, Night of the Demon. It's a filmed version of Casting the Runes. Never saw it. You would like it a lot. Night of the Demon. Yep. Yes. When did that come out? 1950s. Yeah. Well, I know what I'm doing tonight. <laughs> Before we vote, based on Eric's response to this, I am going to highly recommend a modern audio adaptation of The Ash Tree by a phenomenal British production company called Baffle Gab. And they won a lot of awards in 2019 for their version of the Ash Tree. And it is updated to modern times and it is a, a lot more character driven and a lot more production values and very much a radio drama. And it's quite interesting. I think now that you have the base knowledge of what the story is, I think, Eric, you would really enjoy it. I would recommend it to the listeners too. A download of it is like seven bucks and it's an hour long adaptation that's really good. So they Eric'd it up. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Baffle Gab. Um, <laughs> let's send it to the vote. I think it's foregone conclusion of kind of where we're going. Tim, where do you stand on this episode? I'm going to call it a classic just because it, it so hit every note for me. And it really made me think Black Mask, I need to check out more episodes because I really enjoyed both the ones I've heard. And it might end up being like, this is one of my favorite series ever. Joshua? Yeah, I find it hard to use our criteria on this because it is not necessarily traditional radio drama, Black Mass as a series. Of the episodes of Black Mass I have heard, I think this is a classic story. But it's hard for me to call it a classic because I do think there's that barrier if you're a fan of radio drama that it leans so heavily on the narration and very limited cast and very limited Foley. So... It's a classic of radio drama audiobook hybrids. <laughs> I'll put it that way. I will agree with you 100% on that, Joshua. I think it's not exactly radio drama, uh, and that is my issue with it. But if you were to say to me, hey, people are going to read this M.R. James story to you, I think I might have had a different approach going in, but not aimed at me in a lot of ways. And not- I'm sure you're not alone, Eric. I'm sure we bored the pants off of a lot of our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Mission accomplished. All right. Tim, tell them stuff. Please go visit ghoulishdelights.com. That is the home of this podcast. We have a bunch of other episodes there. You can also leave comments, send us a message, link to social media pages, get a hold of us, communicate with each other. Lots of ways to be heard. And note, there's another thing. (laughs) Um, uh, It's gone now. (laughs) Please don't edit this. Well, you just sit there and think about what you were going to say, and I will tell people to go to patreon.com slash the morals and support this podcast with uh, a monthly donation. Uh, If you enjoy the podcast, we enjoy you enjoying it via giving us money. That's our favorite way to experience enjoyment. No, we have a lot of podcasts on there that are members only. So uh, for your donation, you do get some extra content. We've got Cliffhangers of Doom. We are currently listening to uh, City of the Dead from Adventures by Morse. Uh, We also have a bunch of back episodes of a podcast we call Secrets of the Mysterious Old Radio, uh, where we listen to a lot of weird, oddball radio stuff, stuff that didn't make the cut for this podcast, but better than that sounds. (laughs) (laughs) 
And uh, an offshoot of the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society podcast is the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society live shows where we do recreations and original work of uh, radio drama uh, live on stage uh, for people doing all of the uh, characters and all of the Foley themselves. However, since we can't be on stage, we recently, in, here in 2020, starting in March, have been doing uh, original works where we're recording them and um, producing them. And you can buy a ticket through parksquaretheater.org to listen uh, once a month to two original shows with us. Uh, and then we stick around for a Q&A afterwards. Uh, tickets are cheap. Uh, and it's an hour of fun of gathering the family around a computer. All right, it's what's called, coming up next? Uh, next, we are doing the first of a two-part episode to celebrate our fourth anniversary. It was in September, four years ago, that we started this podcast. Wow. And, yeah, I know. Time flies. In honor of that, I have picked two old-time radio presents for my co-hosts, tailored to their unique tastes. Um, and I am going to be presenting them uh, one episode to Eric and one episode to Tim. And so uh, starting next week, since uh, this episode was not Eric's cup of tea, we're starting with Eric's present. But I'm not <laughs> going to tell you what it is. It's going to be a surprise. I know it, but I'm not even ready for Eric to know what it is yet. So Yay. tune in and find out. Until then... Creepy and the cookie, mysterious and spooky.